welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today I'm joined by Michael Bernstein, who is a partner with Arnold & Porter in Washington, D.C., and chair of the firm's National Bankruptcy and Corporate Restructuring Practice. Mr. Bernstein is a member of ABI's Board of Directors and a fellow of the American College of Bankruptcy, for which he serves on the college's Bankruptcy Policy Committee. He has testified before Congress on several occasions and recently served as co-chair of the Labor and Benefits Advisory Committee of the ABI Commission to study the reform of Chapter 11. I'm also joined by Professor George Cuny, who is the director of the Clayton Center for Entrepreneurial Law at the University of Tennessee College of Law in Knoxville, and teaches business associations, contracts, consumer bankruptcy seminars, contract drafting, commercial leasing, remedies, representing enterprises, and workouts and reorganizations. Prior to joining the faculty in 2000, he was a partner in the California firm of Allen, Matkins, Lett, Gamble, and Mallory, where he co concentrated his practice on business law, insolvency, and reorganization matters. Michael and George are the co-authors of ABI's newest publication, the fifth edition of Bankruptcy in Practice, which we will discuss today during this podcast. So welcome, Michael and George. Thanks for joining me today to discuss your new book. Thank you for having us. So, Michael, you and Jack Eyre wrote the original edition of this book in 2002. In the intro to that edition, you indicated that you sought to, quote, marry the classroom with the courtroom, quote. What did you mean by that, and does the original goal carry over into this fifth edition? Uh, what Jack and I tried to do in the original bankruptcy in practice is to combine the ability of a professor to organize material in a way that makes sense and to explain what the law is with the ability of a practicing lawyer to explain how it all works in the real world. Uh, there are a lot of case books and law school texts and the like that can teach you what you need to know to pass a law school exam, but they tend not to help you very much when you actually go to work in the real world. They don't tell you how stuff actually gets done or how to do it in a way that benefits your client. And then there are a number of books for pr practitioners out there, but they tend to assume a fair amount of knowledge and expertise. Uh, so we did something that tried to blend the two. That's why we said we wanted to marry the classroom with the courtroom. Uh, neither Jack nor I had taken a bankruptcy class when we were students in law school, and we both remembered with some uh, trepidation what it was like to start a, as a new associate at a law firm wanting to hit the ground running, but not really knowing anything. So that's what we thought about as we began to write the book. What is it that we would have wanted to know at that time? And we thought we'd want somebody to explain to us in plain English what the law is, and then we'd want someone to tell us how it actually works in the real world. And so that's what we wrote. And and that theme very much continues into the fifth edition of Bankruptcy in Practice that George and I wrote together. There have been a lot of changes in the law since the earlier edition, but the uh, the notion of combining the ability of a professor to teach the law clearly with the ability of a practicing lawyer to explain how it works in the real world is uh, is uh, part of the fifth edition as well. So is your intended audience only uh, new practitioners? It's it's not. You know, when we originally wrote the the book, we thought that would be the primary audience. But as it's turned out over the years, the audience has been much wider than that. Uh, for example, it's included general practice lawyers who want to do some bankruptcy work, uh, law and business students. Uh, a number of professors have been using the book in an effort to teach a real-world class rather than just 
uh, academic principles, uh, investment bankers and financial advisors who operate in the distressed and restructuring space have bought the book. Uh, some private equity fund and hedge fund people who focus on special situations matters. Uh, judges, law clerks have bought the book. A number of bankruptcy judges have told us that they routinely recommend the book to their law clerks. And uh, even some journalists who report on bankruptcy matters have apparently bought the book. So um, certainly the book is useful, we think, for uh, new associates entering the bankruptcy practice. But the audience has turned out to be quite a bit wider than that. And I think one thing that's really helpful is the extensive index at the back of the book. And so I'm sure many practitioners use it as a um, you know, especially early pra- new practitioners use it as a an easy reference guide because they can just go right to the specific topic or uh, key word that they're interested in. That's definitely true, but it's also a very readable text, um, and and that's one of the things that I think both Michael and I are, are the most proud of. You can actually read this like a book, and in fact, my students do. Uh, but the audience is broad enough to be uh, all those people who need to understand some of the intricacies of bankruptcy, some of the stuff that's not in your standard casebook, the way that things actually play out in the real world, along with the substantive law. And that, as Michael indicated, it is a huge broad swath of people who are covering bankruptcy um, in some fashion and for whom otherwise the actual practice of it might be sort of a black hole. Well, let's, let's dive right into the book, um, especially for those folks who may not be familiar with it. Can you kind of walk us through the table of contents and just give us a brief description um, of each chapter and what it covers? The first four chapters of the book really uh, lay out the introduction in Chapter 1 by uh, uh, presenting the dramatis personae uh, of the case, um, who all the players are, clients, uh, attorneys for various parties like secured creditors, uh, unsecured creditors, creditors committees, judges, uh, trustees, standing trustees, U.S. trustees, uh, examiners and the like. Um, with that laid out, we then turn to the sources of bankruptcy law, reaching back all the way to the bankruptcy clause of the Constitution, um, covering, of course, the bankruptcy code and bankruptcy rules, but also uh, enlightening people as to the existence of both local rules and general orders, uh, which are published out there, and then local, local rules, which are sometimes particular to uh, single bankruptcy chambers or courtrooms. Um, we touch on the related federal codes, uh, Title 28 for jurisdiction, um, uh, Title 9 for uh, bankruptcy crimes, um, and, of course, Title uh, 26, the IRS code for uh, tax matters, just to show how bankruptcy um, uh, hooks into these other bodies of law. Um, and that, that takes us into our discussion of bankruptcy as a overlay to uh, traditional non-bankruptcy law, be that state or federal law, and how uh, those two bodies interact, um, sometimes uh, colliding and sometimes accommodating each other. Uh, We then turn to jurisdiction, um, starting with the basic uh, jurisdictional model and the reference from the district court to the bankruptcy courts, the appellate uh, uh, system, um, including the use of bankruptcy appellate uh, panels um, and the possibility of direct appeal to uh, the circuit court level. And then... Uh, After covering the basics of of jurisdiction there, we then do some uh, advanced uh, jurisdiction, um, dealing again with the interaction between state and uh, other federal courts and the bankruptcy court and how that uh, interacts. Michael, why don't you take it from there? 
Okay, so after we've laid out the sources of the law and basic principles of jurisdiction, uh, we talk about what we call getting into bankruptcy and getting out of bankruptcy. So getting in a, into bankruptcy involves who can be a debtor under each chapter of the bankruptcy code, eligibility for Chapter 7, 9, 11, 12, 13, Chapter 15, small business debtors, single asset, real estate cases, and, and so forth. Uh, then we talk about the difference between voluntary petitions and involuntary petitions, and we talk about the basis for converting a case from one chapter of the code to the other. Um, and uh, and then we talk a little about the costs of uh, of bankruptcy proceedings. Um, uh, in the next chapter, Chapter Six, we, fo- we begin to focus on Chapter Eleven, um, and we start with a hypothetical Chapter Eleven case, and we show how that would work, and we talk about the differences between Chapter Seven and Chapter Eleven. Uh, we discuss the role of a debtor in possession and the differences between a debtor in possession and a trustee. Uh, we address plan exclusivity. That is the exclusive right of a debtor to file a plan during the beginning of a Chapter 11 case. And then we talk about some alternatives to Chapter 11, both bankruptcy alternatives like Chapter 13 or Chapter 7, and also non-bankruptcy alternatives, receiverships, ABCs, and, and the like. Uh, the next chapter deals with the automatic stay. Uh, we talk about the reasons for the automatic stay, uh, the exceptions to the automatic stay, how to get relief from the automatic stay, and what the legal grounds are for getting such relief, uh, what happens if you violate the automatic stay, and then we talk a little about waivers of the automatic stay. Um, the next chapter, Chapter 8, deals with property of the estate. We we first discuss the role of the trustee in collecting and distributing property of the estate. Then we get into what constitutes property of the estate under Section 541 and the kinds of property that don't constitute uh, property of the estate. Um, uh, then we talk about some specific interesting property of the estate uh, issues that have come up in the case law um, and uh, and exemptions for individual debtors. Um, and in the chapter nine, we uh, we talk about what we refer to as how does the debtor keep his own property, um, and we talk about various ways that both a corporate debtor and an individual debtor can retain a property. Uh, in a chapter eleven case, that may involve confirming a plan. Um, in individual cases, it can include exemptions, redemption, reaffirmation, and and the like. Uh, George, you want to pick up with chapter ten? Okay, well, yeah, in Chapter 10, um, aptly named, I think, by Michael, was keeping the ship afloat. Um, this is the nuts and bolts of how to operate within uh, Chapter 11, where uh, legal rights are now subject to oversight by creditors and the court and possibly a trustee, um, and how that, that, uh, how that is done. Um, then we have uh, coverage of the trustee uh, or debtor in possession's right uh, to use property under Section 363 um, going forward, which may put that property at risk. It may involve the expenditure of funds. Um, then there is the coverage of debtor in possession financing under Section 364, dealing with what kinds of financing can be obtained and what must be shown to uh, uh, obtain this. And then we close out that chapter by talking about the uh, operating order subject meaning uh, first-day orders that are entered at the start of the case, maybe not literally on the first day, but very soon after it started, which are intended to stabilize operations and provide authorization for the debtor to continue business as usual or some uh, close resemblance to business as usual. Uh, 
The text then turns in uh, Chapter 11 to executory contracts, uh, the scope of what is an executory contract, um, fleshing out how the definition uh, to that has uh, evolved over time, sometimes in, in ways that were something uh, unexpected, or at least probably unexpected uh, by Professor Countryman when he coined the definition um, back in the 50s. Uh, the, we talk about how you cure, compensate, and provide future assurances if you want to assume the uh, contract. And we talk about certain contracts that cannot be assigned uh, or assumed. And the consequence of some interesting statutory uh, wording in the section that has caused uh, some uh, appellate pro uh, issues to arise and some uncertainty, which uh, is by the time this issue or this edition is, is issued, um, has been primarily resolved uh, going forward. Chapter 12, uh, we talk about property rights and liens um, and what kind of liens uh, are respected in bankruptcy, um, what you have to do to continue perfection of a lien, what you need to do to have your lien ride through bankruptcy, um, and the, the, the lien equivalent rights of set-off and recoupment uh, regarding property of the estate and cross-claims that are out there. Uh, we then turn to, um, in Chapter 13, uh, priority and claims and distributions. We present the uh, the classic uh, priority ladder um, and talk about who gets paid and in what order. Um, we discuss the difference between claims and interests, um, types of claims, some special types of claims like unknown claims, um, tort claims, tort claims that have not manifested themselves yet, Similarly, environmental claims and hidden environmental claims, employee claims, tax claims. Um, we provide a practical view on how it is that you file, withdraw, or amend a claim and touch on some of the more uh, esoteric issues regarding claims like subordination, uh, recharacterization, substantive consolidation, and then the uh, growing practice of claims trading uh, going forward. Michael, why don't you take Chapter 14? Okay, so the next two chapters, Chapters 14 and 15, deal with the trustees avoiding powers. Uh, in uh, the first chapter, we weigh out the basics of avoiding powers, including the hypothetical lien power under Section 544A and uh, preferences, uh, post-petition transfers, uh, and reclamation. Um, in Chapter 15, we deal specifically with fraudulent transfers. The fraudulent transfers are sufficiently important, and there's been enough developments in the law recently that we thought it deserved its own chapter. Uh, we talk about the differences between actual fraud and constructive fraud, and then we talk about some specific fraudulent transfer issues that have arisen, including uh, leveraged buyouts and the safe harbor, which has been litigated in a number of recent cases, um, exemption planning as a potential fraudulent transfer and asset protection devices. Uh, then after the avoidance action chapters, uh, chapter 16 talks about the role of a lawyer. Um, we talk about how to get retained and how to get paid, uh, two issues of great import to people who do this for a living. Um, we talk about the requirements uh, imposed on counsel for a debtor in possession and the tension between representing your client and representing the estate. Um, and we talk about issues of disinterestedness, disclosure, conflicts of interest, attorneys, attorneys' ethical duties, and and the like. And then we touch briefly on other professionals in a bankruptcy case as well. 
um, and the retention and compensation issues and the role of those professionals in a Chapter 11 case and uh, and uh, other bankruptcy cases. In Chapter 17, we talk about discharge and dischargeability, both in individual cases and and in business cases where they mean very different things. Uh, we talk about what debts are dischargeable, what debts aren't dischargeable, and uh, how to uh, attack the discharge if you have a basis for doing so. And then we talk about some specific discharge-related issues, including successor liability issues and third-party releases. Um, and then finally, the last chapter deals with the plan. Uh, we start by uh, presenting an overview of the Chapter 11 process and how to design a confirmable plan. And then we talk about the specifics of uh, the confirmation process, impairment of claims, accepting and rejecting classes, the best interest test, uh, cram down, feasibility, classification, the absolute priority rule. And as with everything in the book, we try to boil it down to uh, plain language, practical discussion about how this works from the plan proponent's perspective and from an objector's perspective. Um, and, of course, we talk about the disclosure statement and solicitation rules, and then we talk about prepackaged plans and pre-negotiated plans. So uh, those are the 18 chapters. And, and after hearing all of that, you'd think the book would be, you know, 3,000 pages long uh, or more, but it's only, I mean, it's just shy of 600, and I think, you you know, you mentioned this, but it's really written um, in a very practical way, and it's very readable, and I think that's what makes it such a great um, uh, reference guide, honestly, because people who, um, you know, need this information, uh, you know, may or may not know the law, but they want to hear how to use it, and um, I think your use of hypotheticals throughout the book is really helpful. And so folks who are um, looking to buy the book should know that there are some really great practical tips in here. Um, but this edition, the fifth edition, is about 100 pages longer than the fourth edition. Um, can you talk about some of the major changes that you made in the fifth edition um, and explain why they were necessary? Uh, sure. Well, I'll start with some, and then uh, George can jump in if I leave some out. Um, there have obviously in two th since 2007 been... Uh, um, a number of important uh, changes both to the code and in case law, including Supreme Court cases that have a material impact on the day-to-day -day practice. Uh, some of the changes, including re revisions to uh, certain of the bankruptcy rules, um, and so we updated to have uh, current information about the rules and time limits and deadlines and so forth. There, there have been a number of important jurisdiction-related changes as a result of Supreme Court decisions in, in Stern versus Marshall and the executive benefits case, and uh, those bear on what matters can be heard and decided by bankruptcy courts and what matters have to be heard and decided by Article III courts. Uh, we expanded the section on Chapter 9 uh, as a result of the increased use of Chapter 9 in uh, Detroit and and some other cases. And, and I think we had the view that uh, we were only seeing the beginning of municipal bankruptcies, so we talk a little bit more about Chapter 9 in this edition than we had in the past. Uh, we also talk a bit more about Chapter 15 and cross-border bankruptcies, given the increase of filings and legal developments in in uh, the cross-border world, and I, I think, again, the future is young in cross-border bankruptcy. Uh, we have a new section on credit bidding uh, uh, in the plant sale context to address the Supreme Court's 2012 decision in Radwax, and on gifting plans where there have been some important developments. 
Um, we have an expanded discussion of professional fee issues to address uh, the Lehman decision on committee members getting paid their uh, their legal fees and the Baker and Botts decision, which is getting a lot of attention from the Asarco bankruptcy on the ability of a lawyer to get paid for defending his or her fee application. Uh, we have a somewhat expanded discussion of federal versus state law. As uh, as George mentioned in his discussion of the jurisdiction uh, chapters, we uh, we talk about that some even in the prior edition. But in this edition, we um, uh, include a discussion of some McCarran-Ferguson issues that have uh, arisen in uh, the spate of recent insurance insolvency matters, the Rooker-Feldman Doctrine, and some other uh, related state versus federal jurisdiction issues. Uh, we have an expanded discussion of uh, developing Chapter 11 law on interest rates after the Supreme Court's Till decision. Uh, more discussion of 503b9, as there's been uh, a number of new cases on uh, interpreting what constitutes goods and what happens to goods and services, hybrid situations, and some other issues. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, there's been a, a bunch of new law on fraudulent transfers, including Ponzi scheme, fraudulent transfers, LBO issues, uh, the 546E safe harbor, and so we've expanded that discussion. Um, and uh, uh, some new discussion on asset sale laws, particularly relating to the successor liability doctrine as applied in 363 sales and what you can and cannot sell free and clear of. So uh, uh, we knew that there was a lot of change in the law when George and I started doing this. And as we dug into it, we found that there was even more than we anticipated. So it, I think it uh, vindicates our decision and ABI's decision to, to uh, undertake a new addition. And I won't add any, any additional uh, items to the laundry list except to, to say that you know, the time since 2007 um, has been quite one for the development of bankruptcy law and practice. The Great Recession ushered in a number of large cases, uh, a number of very emergency cases, um, and uh, the law has been uh, stretched and molded and applied in new and different ways, sometimes for good and sometimes for ill, uh, as a result. And we really needed to um, uh, address all of those in this fifth edition. Um, the Great Recession really is a catharsis for change in bankruptcy law. Um, made this edition necessary. And of course, you know, going forward, depending on how things shake out with the report from the uh, Commissioner Reform Chapter 11, we may see some, even some more changes um, coming down our um, down the path uh, fairly soon. I mean, so um, I appreciate all your efforts, uh, Michael and George, for the hard work on this book. Um, sometimes it's it's easier to start a book from the beginning up than to add and edit an existing book. So um, I appreciate your work on this. And, um, and I also I wanted to thank you for taking the time to join us today for this podcast. I know for those of, of uh, for our listeners, um, I commend you to the book and to the ABI website at abi.org to um, take a look at it and purchase it, uh, especially if you're um, newer in practice um, or just need a refresher on what some of the you know, important uh, laws and changes were. It's a really great read. Well, thank you, Amy. It was a great pleasure to work on this with ABI and a terrific learning experience to work with George. He's a, he's a great co-author, and, and I enjoyed it a lot. Likewise. Thanks again, Michael and George, for joining me today. If you are interested in purchasing the Bankruptcy and Practice book, visit ABI's website at abi.org. 
Thank you for listening today. This has been another ABI podcast. You can find all of ABI's podcasts on ABI's website at abi.org. Thank you so much and have a great day.